You oh. taught me to listen to my body. And for the first time in my life, I actually started to begin slowly, it did take a while, to understand my body. I no longer ignore my body. You know, it, it, your body is so clever, isn't it? it? It actually tries to tell you that things are going wrong yeah. and it is so easy to be dismissive. Um, and that in itself is empowering. Hi, my name is Rongan Chaschi, GP, television presenter and author of the best-selling books, The Stress Solution and The Four Pillar Plan. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome back to episode 87 of my Feel Better Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chasji and I am your host. Now before we get started today, just a quick reminder that my latest book, Feel Better in Five, comes out in the UK in just two weeks time. In it, I have tried my best to make health as simple as possible. I summarise the best research in behaviour change science and explain why five minutes is all you need to transform the way that you feel. Every single health recommendation in my new book takes only five minutes to do. And if you pre-order a copy before December the 26th, Penguin will send you out a free Feel Better in Five success chart. One of the key principles of being able to turn a new behavior into a long-term habit is to celebrate your success. This free success chart will make it really easy for you to track your progress on my Feel Better in 5 plan. So if you go to drchatterjee.com forward slash FBI5chart, you will see an email address to which you can send in your receipt. This offer applies to all orders placed before December the 26th. So even if you have already pre-ordered the book, you are absolutely able to claim your free chart. Also, in January 2020, to celebrate the launch of my new book, I will be speaking live and doing some book signings at various cities around the country. You can see all the dates at drchatterjee.com forward slash events. I really hope to meet some of you in person this January. Now, on to today's conversation, which is a bit different from normal. Today, I talked to a former patient of mine, Nicola Singleton. I met Nicola back in September 2016 on the second series of my BBC One TV documentary, Doctor in the House. Since then, she has completely transformed her health, and I'm so pleased that she has agreed to share her story with you. Nicola was, in her own words, age 38, but feeling 98. She had a list of 10 different health diagnoses and was taking roughly 20 pills every single day. Her main issues were feeling crippled with the exhaustion of chronic fatigue syndrome, along with the debilitating widespread pain of fibromyalgia. These are both complex conditions, they are often misunderstood, and she had been told that there was no hope of recovery. She couldn't work, couldn't play with her kids, could barely get out of bed. Nicola also suffered from other complaints, such as anxiety, depression, 
and irritable bowel syndrome. She was so desperate to feel better and start living again that she allowed me and a BBC television crew to practically move in with her, her husband, and three young children for six weeks. In this podcast, we revisit what happened and how by removing the illness label and focusing on the creation of health rather than treating disease, Nicolette was pain-free by the end of those six weeks. Even more enlightening, though, is our chat about everything that Nicola has achieved since then without me. I know you're going to find this fascinating, whether you saw the TV show or not. Nicola is a remarkable woman, and her story a truly inspirational one. Now, before we get started, as always, I do need to give a quick shout out to some of the sponsors of today's show. Vivo Barefoot, the minimalist footwear company, continue to support my podcast. I am a huge fan of Viva Barefoot shoes and have been wearing them for many years, long before they started supporting my podcasts. I have seen them have incredible benefits both for myself and my patients with mobility, back pain, hip pain, knee pain, and so much more. I really like this brand and everything that they stand for. For listeners of my show, they continue to offer a fantastic discount. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more, they are giving 20% off as a one-time code for all of my podcast listeners in the UK, USA, and Australia. Importantly, they do offer a 30-day free trial for new customers, so if you are not happy, you can send them back for a full refund. Perhaps you're thinking about getting a pair for yourself or even for a loved one at this festive time of year. Now, Viva Barefoot Shoes are not the traditional festive gift, but one that could be of real benefit to your loved ones and for the planet, as this is a brand that takes sustainability really, really seriously. You can go to their website to see all of the last shipping dates. The final one for express shipping is the 20th of December, depending on your country. And remember, you can get your 20% off codes by going to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So Nicola, welcome to the Feel Better Live More podcast. Thank you. How are you feeling? Very excited. Yeah, a bit nervous or are you good? Absolutely, but very excited, yes. Fantastic. Well, look, we have been trying to get this set up for a long period of time now. Um, our schedules just haven't managed to match up. But you've got an incredible story, Nicola, and not everyone who listens to this podcast will have seen Doctor in the House. You were in the second season of Doctor in the House. You had a brilliant story. And I think we should just wind it back to the beginning so people understand the context of what's going on. So um, can you remember how you started to apply to be on the show? Do you remember what happened? I remember um, I'd had um, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia for quite a while. On top of that, I'd had really bad anxiety. I'd had anxiety and depression for years off and on. And I wasn't actually depressed at that time, but I'd had bouts of depression as well. And I remember one day I was just walking up to where I live, which is at the top of a quite a steep hill. And I was in so much pain and I was just so exhausted. And I just knew that life had to get better than how I was living it. And I happened to, um, my middle child was in a modeling agency and I just happened to get an email. And I just saw this email as I'm walking up the hill at age, I think I was 38 at the time, feeling 98, um, everything was hurting, everything was sore. And I just saw this email because I'd stopped. And it just said, it was on about 
Doctor in the House and what really appealed at the time because I hadn't seen the first series so it's not something I was aware of but just uh, my only thought at that point was the opportunity to have a doctor to come and see me at my house was just it that was my driving force really to apply for the series yeah wow so what 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 does that process look like you know you you didn't see the first season um you see that there's an opportunity to actually have a doctor come and live alongside you and your family for I guess up to six weeks is kind of what we were saying at the time um what was it that appealed to you was it but was it that you were always very complimentary about your own doctors about your GP um from recollection I think you were I was complimentary but I was frustrated because they really couldn't do anything for me and I, I knew that it, it, it's hard to explain but I think I just had this fire in my belly that I knew that this should not be how I'm living for the rest of my life I kept saying my retirement was my 30s. Yeah. You know, um, I just felt so old and so much in pain. And I go to the doctors and we try different pills and then you get side effects from the pills. And I knew I was zombied. I, I knew. And logically I knew, but I didn't know what to do about it. I tried looking online, but there was so much conflicting information. It leads really to inertia because you really don't have a clue. And you get told there's no hope of recovery and this is it. But I just, I, I knew that even though my doctors were lovely, that I didn't agree and I didn't want to be rude and tell them that I didn't agree. Well, I think, I mean, I think that the story you just mentioned there, so many things to pick up on because what you just said, there will be so many people listening to this podcast right now who feel the same way, who know something's not right with their health and what they're being told and the pills that they're being given may be helping a little bit. They may simply be suppressing symptoms, but a lot of people, you hear this over and over again. I, I get this on social media most days, messages, people saying, look, what can I do? You know, my doctor's lovely, they're trying their best, but I'm no better, I'm still struggling. Um, but there was a other piece you just mentioned, which really rang true with me, which is you didn't want to be a fuss. You didn't yeah. want, um, you knew they were trying to help. You didn't want to be a, I don't know, what did you say? You didn't they want to be rude. I didn't want to tell them they were wrong. Yeah, and I, and I think- very much that has always been since I've known you, which is, it's almost, what are we now? We're recording this middle of October, 2019. I, I met you and your family for the first time just over three years ago, September, 2016. Do you, do you still remember that day? Absolutely. Tell yes. me about it. What oh, happens? It was just, it was such a surreal, like it was, it was just so surreal. Um, I'd, I'd obviously done my research and I'd, I'd seen the previous episodes that you'd done on series one. Um, and it was, it was, I was excited. I was really scared and I didn't really see beyond you coming to the house. I didn't really think of the cameras. Yeah. Um, I didn't think of it being aired. I really didn't think of any of that. I just really, I was just welcoming opportunity to have an effect a doctor all to myself, um, been able to sort of listen to all my issues and try and get to the root cause of what was going on. Our causes was in my case. So you didn't really think beyond, hey, I want to get on this show and I want to have... The show was irrelevant, to be fair. At that point, it wasn't about getting on television. Getting on television wasn't it wasn't what excited me. I never shared anything about my illness with anyone other than my husband. So I didn't really talk about it. So I didn't even, as stupid as it sounds now, the TV part of it wasn't the attraction. Yeah, and Nicola, that, that really makes sense to me because since I've done those two seasons, I've, I've often reflected back on every single family who I had the privilege of going to live alongside and helping. And 
no one was driven by being on television. And I think that's something the public don't always get is that why I always used to wonder why would somebody go through the process of having cameras in their house for six weeks, watching everything that's going on, recording everything that's going on, opening up, you know, deepest emotions, things that are going on. Why would they do that? Desperation. Exactly. And that's what I picked up, not only with your story, with everyone's story, people were desperate. They wanted help and they thought this might be an opportunity to get help. Absolutely. I was desperate and I freely admit that. Well, it was horrible. It was horrible. Yeah. I mean, and looking at you today, three years on, it's like looking at a different person and, you know, we have stayed in contact. So, you know, you're, you're very good at staying in touch and actually sending me update texts on yeah. a regular basis. Which Do you know are- why I did that though? Sorry, I just interrupted, but I did that because I remember you saying that we was in it together. So even beyond sort of you being like, obviously physically at my house, anytime something new happened, I was just always excited to share it with you. Yeah. And that's why I did it. It was in my head. We were still together on it. Yeah. And, it's, and it was it's, nice. It, I've got to say, you know, I love getting them every single time because I do think we started off in partnerships together. And I, as I did with every family, my vow was I am literally going to do everything within my power whilst I'm with them to see how far I can get them, how far I can help them improve, how far I can empower them with information so that when I'm no longer here, they know what to do. And obviously we've stayed in touch and it's been, it's been lovely to see your progression. So let's, for people listening, let's just paint a picture. Let's rewind three years. Just before you came on, even in the first few weeks of you being on the show with me, on Doctor in the House, um, how did you feel? What was going on? Can you remember now what a day used to look like for you? Uh, a, a day was actually endless. Every day was endless. You'd wake up in the morning because I had to get up to take the kids to school. They were all in school at that point. Um, I used to drive to school because we'd, we'd moved house and downsized, so I needed the car because we lived further away from school. Um, but I'd always, every morning, get out of bed. I can't even describe how that felt. Um, it was a real mind battle just to get up. I'd take the kids to school, I'd come back and I'd be on the couch and I'd, I would stay there really till three o'clock when I picked them back up. And I think my busy time really was just trying to cut them a meal uh, before Ian came home. And it was just, every day was just painful. Every day was just full of exhaustion. I was existing, I wasn't living, I wasn't enjoying, I wasn't happy. I didn't know what really happiness was because you cannot forget that you've got this illness. I mean, I know with hindsight, no, you can, but actually when I was going through it, I didn't. So I was always aware that I was ill, although I never called it an illness. I was very pedantic with my minions. And I used to say to you, I'm not ill. I live with an illness. And for me, that was a, a it, it mattered that I said that. Um, I think I was in massive denial, even though I couldn't deny it. You know, but standing up for five minutes, I'd be really sore. Sitting down, I'd be sore. I could never get comfy. Yeah. And every day was like, I'd go to bed in the evening and think, I managed to get through another day. Yeah. When I remember that, you know, because it's it's very it's a very artificial situation in some ways where there are cameras on, right? And you're, uh, I'm trying to take what we call a history. So I'm trying to find out everything I can about you. But obviously there's also cameras there. They're trying to pick up and, and document the story so they can tell it whenever the show finally airs. Um, and obviously I had been through one season, so I knew the process. But but it's still it's not the same as being in the surgery in the consultation room. But in many ways, it's in many ways that that whole environment lends itself to more depth and more 
you know, there's something unique about being in that sort of situation when people around you, there's cameras on, there's mics on. I don't know, people open up, you know, and it, it sounds almost counterintuitive. But I remember thinking, because I've got to say, I found your case was very challenging for me. Yeah. You know, I, I've shared that with you. I, I didn't, yeah. it was not easy. None of them were easy, but it was, it was particularly challenging. And I would spend, I would be up late most nights trying to figure out how am I going to help Nicola and her family? You know, I knew I could, but there were so many things going on. And, and, and you had, I think we counted up, you had had 10 different diagnoses from uh, the doctors in the past few years. You know, uh, I think there was anxiety, depression, IBS. Sciatica. Sciatica, cyclical migraine. Um, you had this bloating gut problem. You had these back pains. You had fibromyalgia as a as a uh, diagnosis, hypothyroidism. You know, there, there was a big list. And I remember I thinking, how am I gonna, how am I gonna get through? I, I have a very different approach. The way I look at the human body, uh, it's very much not the way I was taught to look at it. Apart, I, there it is for some cases, but in a lot of these sort of chronic cases, like the one you had. I don't find the way that I was taught at medical school that helpful in trying to manage a condition like yours. Because what happens is you were a classic patient who had literally been picking up different diagnoses over about 10 years. You had a collection, you had a suitcase full of different diagnoses, and you were on different pills for different diagnoses. But still, you were in pain, you were knackered, you were struggling. So for me, it was like, well, okay, if the medication's helping, and it's helping you function, fine. But all I saw was a lady with 10 diagnoses on 20 different pills a day. Because I remember we, we shot that, we counted it, 20 pills a day. And despite that, you didn't really have a, a deep understanding of what was going on with you. You were struggling. You couldn't get out of bed. You couldn't play with your children. You had to give up working. You could barely cook for your kids, let alone play with them. And I remember thinking, well, I've got to it's very hard because I'm coming in with a new philosophy and how do I get that across to you? And I don't know if you remember, you, I'm sure you do remember, but I remember we used that train set analogy. Yeah. And um, I'll just explain what it was first. And then, you, you know, I'm interested to, to see what you thought of that. I, I got this train set and we put it on the table and I said at the front, Nicola, this is you. This is the carriage where the driver would sit. That's you. And over the last 10 years, you've picked up I think nine or 10 different carriages behind you. These are all your different diagnoses. So what I'm proposing is for the next six weeks while I'm with you, let's get rid of all these diagnoses. Let's get rid of the labels that have been put on you. And let's just look at Nicola. Let's just look at you and let's figure out all the different parts in your body that I can. Let's see if we can optimize health. So in, in a nutshell, instead of managing disease, I was thinking, how can I help create health in Nicola? What did you think the very first time I used that analogy on you? Honestly, it didn't really matter to me in that respect. I didn't, I don't think I took it in what really you was yeah. meaning. I was drugged. <laughs> yeah. I know Ian got upset. My husband, he, he, I know he got upset. He, I think he understood it way more than I did at that point. Upset with me? Um, or No, upset. He got upset because it was the first time that he felt hopeful that I could sort of improve. You know, he'd, he, 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 I suppose it, everything had fallen onto him. And I think he was just like, wow. But I think for me at that point, whether it's because I was drugged or exhausted or combination of both, it was more, I was just thankful that you were here. And that's what mattered to me. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? And I think that's a message for 
any healthcare professional listening to this is there's something about a patient feeling that their story is being heard. Absolutely. Um, and, and in many ways, I don't know what you think. I think that's the most important thing that any healthcare professional can do for their patients. Yeah. And I think even today, they still don't, on a very odd occasion, have to go to the doctors. It's, there's no, they don't listen. So you just, there's no point going to a doctor. It's awful because I've come through this and I'm very thankful and very grateful for it. It's made me very mistrustful. Yeah. Of the, like the general doctors, not because they're not trying to do the best, but I still even say don't feel listened to. Yeah. And it's beyond frustrating. So it's just, but it is what it is. And I'm beyond grateful for the fact that I'm so much better and so much well, you know, I've got so much more health than I ever thought I would ever would have. Yeah. I mean, it is incredible. So let's actually walk through what we did then. So what did we start working on? What I loved about you though, the reason why I could just trust you from the start off is I had been told, and I know there's different interpretations of this, but straight away you said to me, I said to you, please don't tell me that I have to accept this. And you went, no, why would you want to accept it? Why would anyone want to accept it? And I just loved you from that moment of sort of saying that because had I been having it drilled into me that I had to accept, I had to accept, I had to accept. And I really couldn't do that. You know, I know, I know now that some people by accepting it allows them to move forward. But for me, it meant I was giving in and I just was not going to give in. And yes, I fought the illness in all the wrong ways you can imagine. But I still to this day don't think that for me, an acceptance was never part of it. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. that I, I just want to highlight because these things can get quite uh, emotional for people. What we did together, Nicola, was individual and personalized for you, right? That is the approach that together we thought was going to help you. Now, another patient with the same list of labels and diagnoses may need a different approach. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that I'm really trying to change or help change within medicine is this idea that actually the name of the disease doesn't necessarily tell you how to treat it. It's not like all cases of fibromyalgia are the same. You know, there are different driving factors in different people. And if we move into an era of personalized medicine, our, our job, I think, as doctors is to figure out what are the important driving factors with the patient for that individual. Mm. And I think that's a key point that often gets missed. It's like, oh, well, that that's not the way to treat fibromyalgia. Well, whatever you may or may not think about the approach we took, you know, being uh, three years ago on 20 pills a day, not being able to function, not being able to walk around the block, not being able to play with your kids, not being able to work, to today where you hardly take, I mean, some days no pills, maybe one pill a day. Not even that, not generally. Even, yeah, so you've gone from, you've reduced your pharmaceutical intake by 20 pills, which is just a phenomenal story in itself. You can now do so much more than you could ever do. And I'd love you to explain what those things are. Clearly the approach worked for you. Absolutely. You know, so... Because I know you've had a lot of criticism since yes. you've been on, and we'll we'll explore how you found that. Um, but whatever happened has worked for you. Yes. Yeah. Beyond my wildest dreams, actually, and it's that's why it's so emotional because I could never envisage being here today doing this with you. Yeah. On well, the other side. Why don't you tell the listener? So we've heard sort of how bad things were. Paint a picture of your life today. What does it look like? You know, compared to then. Well, then, as I've said before, it was just every day was an endurance. I didn't see any beauty in any day. Um, it was just, how do I get through this day? How do I get through this day? I didn't want to die. 
I said, you know, I didn't want to die, but I, I didn't want to keep living the way that I was living. I just can't even describe just how difficult that was. Um, whereas like now it doesn't sound so much a big deal, but I'm home educating my youngest. We pulled him out of school two years ago. Literally as soon as I got well, it's, it ended up moving him. And that's a challenge obviously in itself. Um, I'm a parent governor at Bolton Sixth Form College and I love that. And it's massively at my comfort zone because I'm with all these super intelligent people. And then there's me there just from a parent perspective, but it's great. And I'm also involved with my son's rugby club. He plays yeah. for Bolton Rugby and I'm I'm always now willing to put myself out there and try new things. Yeah. I'm not frightened of anything. Because, well, I am frightened, but I will still push through it because it's just it is just a mental thing. I'm so much more open. I'm yeah. helping out with events and stuff at the club. I mean, just to, so to, to put it in perspective, guys, and, and if you haven't seen it, I'd encourage you to jump onto YouTube and have a look at this episode. I will link to it in the show notes for this episode. But, you know, this is unbelievable. The fact that you can actually work, be a school governor. You could, you could barely get out of bed before. And you couldn't play with your kids. To now to go and do these things is simply... That's one of the nicest things that they, and it, it's, there's been a lot of big things but it's the smallest things that have really mattered the most, you know, like with Logan. I mean, <laughs> he was 12 when we did the show. He's now nearly 16. Wow. He's six foot two, but we still play a fight. Yeah. He says he takes it easy on me. I'm like, no, you don't, because I'm very competitive yeah. with him. But we like, it's almost like that primal tick thing we do. You know, and it's just, yeah, yeah. it's like he regressed a little once I got better because we could play again. It's going to almost retap things that he'd never got to do with you before. Yes. You know, yeah. and Zachary had... <laughs> Zachary was born with me being ill so the guilt around that and the fact that I with the other two at least when they were very little I could do ball pills and I could do packs and things like that with Zachary I was actually very lucky because I had a friend who would look after him and he ended up like being at nursery a couple of days a week because I literally could not look after him and my friend would bring him home and one day they'd like seen a frog and was watching this frog in the stream and they'd had this super, super time. And I was so thankful to my friend for doing that. But it cut me up inside because I couldn't. To go from that to, <sighs> um, he, I call him a little boomerang now because he's with me 24-7. <laughs> um, and I get all this extra time with him. And initially, I think I felt doing the home education, it was my way of saying sorry to him without ever telling him. Because obviously it's, I'm not going to put that burden on him. It's not his to hold, but the guilt, not being able to look after him really, really hurts. Um, but actually now he doesn't really remember that. It's it, it was his norm. And obviously our lives now have taken a very different path. And it's just such a privilege to get all this extra time with all three of them. You know, it, it's, it's lovely to be able to be a part of their lives do, do you think you've got a deeper appreciation of life today because of what you've been through? Absolutely, 100%, yes. Yeah, and I guess many of us take, they say life for granted, we take for granted that we can get up and play with our kids and go for wars and go to our job and work hard and work late and come back and we can still function. I always say I appreciate all the... It's, <laughs> my son started playing for Bolton Rugby two years ago wow. and... I always said that I would never complain about standing in a wet, muddy field because every Sunday you can guarantee it's raining and it's wet and it's a bit miserable, but I love it. I love just being able to stand there and not be in pain. You know, and it's, I couldn't have done that before. Yeah. You know, little things like that. It's, you know, it's nothing. Just standing on a field is not a big deal, but it's, 
I'm so grateful for the fact that yeah. I can do that. It's and- amazing that, the, you know, because when you've never experienced illness, you know, it's, oh, it's raining today, <sighs> muddy rain. Do I have to stand here and watch the football game? But you went through years where you couldn't do that. So even just standing in a muddy field watching your son play mm-hmm. is just a phenomenal experience. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us is to, it's these little things that we take for granted. We don't realize how precious they are until we've lost them. Absolutely. And I felt like I lost all my 30s. You know, it's the cold weather. I used to dread the cold weather when I was ill because it would always make the symptoms worse. Yeah. Never understood why, but it always did. So there's no way. And rugby's played in winter. Yeah. So there's very little nice weather in rugby. You know, and in it's the north just, of England. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good part, yeah, because doing south is better weather. But yes, you know, so the other week it was absolutely raining out. I've never seen rain quite as heavy as that for You're as long. You're still happy doing it? Or do absolutely. You... Well, now I'm doing the first aid. Well, I'm right. trying to do the first aid, but because um, I was a bit freaked out when, the, when he first started playing because I was worried about him getting injured. Um, but it's just, it's like I say, you just appreciate it's the small things. Yeah. I don't have to plan. Do you know how great, I mean, I do, I actually do schedule now, but I can go out. I don't have to plan. That's it. I remember now you used to say that every little thing for going out has to be planned. Uh, you know, where you're going, what time, who's taking you. I, 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 you just, can you remember all that? Absolutely. Because I always said there's no spontaneity in illness because I couldn't just decide to go out because you'd have payback. So everything had to be macro managed. It had to be very tightly controlled. Otherwise, I won't be able to function the day after. Yeah. You know, now if we decide we want to go out, we can go out. I can go out in the evening. You know, my first time of going out in the evening with Ian was actually to go and watch Pate de Vel, the musical in Manchester. Wow. And it, I'd not been out in the evening for about six years. Yeah. Because I just couldn't function. So the fact that I could do it, it was it's such a special time. Yeah. When I remember, I think it was the Christmas after we finished. We finished filming in November, September to November. And I got a, a card from your kids. Um, and, you know, I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, you just want to say thank you. Thanks for giving us our mum back. And I've kept that card because it was just, a, it was so, it was just so lovely to, because, you, yeah, I mean, you remember how hard work it was, Doctor in the House. I mean, it was just, it was the most, from, from my level, it was the most intense professional period in my entire life I mean I've never known anything like it you know uh, that second season was almost six months of close to seven days a week of being on it um, with multiple families across the country on camera very complex patients Um, I felt so guilty now for so long because I watched the fireside chat that you did that you called me hard work and it made me laugh because I thought yeah my husband would agree with you there I I said it in a respectful way (laughs) you did but it it was really funny and initially it was hard it was hard right but I was hard work and I know I was hard work and then I felt and that's the reason why I kept sending you texts saying look I'm doing this now look I'm doing this now because it was my way of saying sorry that I was so hard work and I think the frame of mind that you're in when you're in that illness it's I was just so uber controlling but you had to be, right? That's what I felt. I had. And the thing is, again, it's that understanding and I didn't really understand. So I could only, to, to get well in effect, I had to lose everything that I thought I knew because it wasn't working. You almost had to undo yeah, what you knew, what start learned. from scratch yeah, and then start again. Because you told me to do the opposite of what I'd been previously yeah. taught. So that took some while to assimilate. Yeah. One, one thing I remember super clearly, I think it was the very first day we were together, um, and again, you read about this stuff as a doctor, you get taught about it, but I don't get to see my patients in their home environments. So we went for a walk 
that evening or late afternoon, early evening, we went for a walk with the camera crew. You know, obviously not with the camera crew, the camera crew are following us going for our walk. And I knew all your symptoms and I was like, okay, let's get a real feel for this. So we went out for a walk together, around the block. And it was just amazing to see how, yes, you were getting more and more tired, but there came a point in that walk where you couldn't talk anymore. Suddenly, I remember it, you, your words started to slur and your eyelids started to droop slowly. They weren't, um, it was as if the energy in your body had just run out. Does that, does that, is that ringing a bell? I didn't even realize I slurred. Yeah, there was just... It so I just was, didn't, I wasn't aware. You weren't, and, and for me, uh, I'd been reading a lot about mitochondrial function for the past, previous few years. I'm really fascinated how the health of our mitochondria impacts a whole variety of different conditions, including fibromyalgia. And I remember seeing that thinking, to me, it looks as though your mitochondria were working and suddenly your physical exertion exceeded the capacity of your mitochondria to generate energy. And suddenly then your, bo- your body could no longer generate enough energy for you to speak properly and for your eyelids to work properly. And I, I really got a deep understanding of mitochondrial function in that moment. Mitochondria, for people who are not familiar, they do many things in the body, but they are fundamentally uh, the body's energy factories. That's one way of looking at them. They help to generate energy that we need to do anything. And I saw it so clear that I thought, oh my God, her mitochondria aren't functioning as efficiently as they should. So what you want to do on a daily basis is exceeding the capacity of where your mitochondria are currently at. And so I told you something that I think was not what you've been told before. I said, I think for a few weeks, we're going to have to cut. I don't think this walking going around the block is actually helping you. It may eat somebody else, but I thought for you, we need to help your body recuperate and help to restore it and actually get those mitochondria working so that you can then go and do this. Um, which I think was alien to what you'd been told before that, right? Absolutely. Because I, I was still trying to exercise with members of the gym and I would go drugged up beforehand, try and do a little bit on the treadmill and cross trainer, not even really do that much. It was really frustrating because I'd worked in a gym previously, so I knew what to do. And I was like sort of coaching Cam and Ian and they were losing weight and getting fitter. And I was like getting fatter and slower. Do you remember what you said to me the day after you went to the gym? So you would drug yourself up, you would go to the gym because obviously that made you feel you've got some control. You're like, well, I'm yeah. still going to go and work out. But the next day, I think the next day or two, you would just, you couldn't get out of bed. Even the night, I, I mean, I timed it so that when I came back, I didn't have to do anything. I think what's interesting for me is that, and there's nothing wrong with this at all. You were trying to stay physically active. Yeah. You were trying to go, no, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to keep going, even if it wipes me out that evening and it wipes me out for the next two days. And again, you know, a few years ago, I probably would have thought that would be good advice as well. But there was something about it. And, and of course, I can only get this insight by spending this much time with you. It was like, actually, I reckon we'll be able to get there. But I think we need to take a few weeks off from this. And let's really work on, as I said at the start, getting rid of the labels, not in a derogatory way, but just I'm, I, I find sometimes labels for a whole variety of reasons aren't that helpful. They can be, but sometimes they, they condition us that, oh, I have this now. Uh, and I'm interested in what you said at the start, you know, your use of language around your illness. Just remind us what you said about how you saw your illness. I saw it as a separate entity entirely. To you? To me. So I didn't, I wasn't ill. I lived with an illness and that really mattered. Doing the exercise thing, 
I thought very wrongly, but I thought that that was my way of putting two fingers up at the illness and I can still do it. But actually, I had no concept of how to look after my body. I mean, I was taught actually to ignore my body. So I did. By who? Doctors. What did they say? Well, there's no, there is no reason for my pain. So therefore I could ignore it. I wasn't going to break my back. I wasn't going to break a bone. So the pain, there was no reason for that pain. So, so how, do, how does that make you feel as a patient, whether you're in pain, you're in agony, you're taking lots of codeine-based painkillers, opiates, basically, um, and they're saying there's no reason for your pain. What I mean, how does that make you feel? A whole host of things, but it's 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 frustrating because it, the thing with me, I suppose, I was really lucky because, as you saw, I had a very nurturing bubble with Ian and my boys. Yeah, you've so got I was a great very family. well looked after. Um, and actually we'll have to talk about how Ian struggled with the recovery because that's that's interesting um, but I just did, it, I was very well protected so I didn't care if nobody else believed me I felt believed because Ian believed me and all I cared about was that he did and he really did and he, he actually understood it way more than I ever thought he did when he, I was sort of over, I was like listening when we had that conversation with him initially in the back garden I thought let's see how much he actually does understand and he just really did. Yeah. Um, and I, I just loved the fact that he just, he really did understand. So I didn't have what sadly a lot of people have where they feel that their illness is not believed. I did feel believed, but I was never the kind of person to go and tell people that I had this illness. Yeah. I kept it extremely private and then I put myself on television, but I didn't talk really about the illness. I didn't want to. I think I was ashamed of it and I was appalled by it and I hated it and I hated me completely. So it's, I didn't share anything of what I was feeling. Not even Ian really. There's some really, really low moments that, you know, I, I would just not cry because I thought if I cry, I would never stop. Yeah. But I felt, but I was protected. But some people don't feel that their illness is believed and yeah. that creates. So when the doctor is saying to you, there's no reason for your pain and you're feeling that pain, what do you do with that? Yeah. So you ignore it, or I did. I ignored it because I thought, well, I know, and I knew logically I was not going to hurt my body, yeah. you know, in terms of breaking anything by exercising. But I had no concept at that point that I was causing so much damage. Yeah. It's really profound that, and it's something that I think that as doctors, as a profession, this is one thing I don't think we've been brilliant at. Um, not all doctors, of course, but this whole idea that, you know, not taking certain things seriously, the, the things that we've conventionally as a profession, and I, I think, I hope things are changing, the things like fibromyalgia, you know, as, you know, certainly throughout my career, I've seen many occasions where it's not taken seriously. Irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, for many years has not been taken seriously. Um, and I think by not doing that, we really cause problems because I always say to people, you know, whatever you think of what's going on, there is a reason why a patient has turned up in front of you. There is a reason, whether you think it's a waste of time or not, which I, and I never have thought that a patient coming in is wasting my time, genuinely never. Because even for example, if somebody comes in to see me and they've had a runny nose for two days, right? And a lot of people will say, oh, it's just a waste of the NHS of time, it's a waste of their money, they shouldn't be coming in. And I get that on one level, but for me, I'm always interested in the, and I'm always interested in people. I'm thinking, well, why does this person feel that after two days of a runny nose, that actually they need to be taking time off work, 
spend you know 30 minutes waiting in line in the GP until you get seen and what is it going on in their life what has been their upbringing what's their health understanding why do they feel the way they do because I just believe I believe in people and I believe that actually they're coming there they're not they're not trying to waste someone's money they're not trying to waste time they feel that they need help for that and you know and someone else might not. Someone, you know, who's got a really good health understanding will spend three or four weeks with a cough and cold and never go and see their doctor. And that's great. But actually saying that these people are wasting our time, I think it's a little bit derogatory, if I'm honest. And a lot of people, to be honest, me included, I hated going to the doctors. I didn't ever want to go and see my doctor. Not because my doctor was awful, just I didn't want to go and see my doctor. Yeah. I didn't value myself. So it was, you know, I just, I didn't want to go and bother them. Yeah. So when I did go, it really was because I was feeling very low. Yeah. So I remember the first, well, one of the first things we did with you was uh, change your diet. Yeah. Because... I was um, so reluctant to that. <laughs> I called it the no fun food diet for a while. I remember. It's, um, and again, just, I want to just outline what my philosophy was. My philosophy was, look, there are multiple things here that could be contributing. I don't know which is or not, right? But let's go through your body systematically and change what we can. Let's focus on the creation of health. Um, so we, you know, we, we basically change your diet to a, a very much like a whole food, fresh food diet. Um, so a lot of the things that you were used to having, we were cussing out. Yep. Um, we, I think I spoke to you a little bit about obviously reducing your physical activity. We Six months we did that for. Did we? Wow. Yeah, it was six months you said not to exercise. Yeah. Wow. I don't, I mean, that's incredible. Um, I know that I felt that this bloating issue that you had, I felt that you might have something called uh, SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And I thought that was contributing in some way to your gut function and maybe contributing to your symptoms. There are some studies out there which suggest it might be. Again, I'm being very careful with my language because people get very inflamed with this stuff. And it's very easy for this stuff to get misinterpreted. But this was an approach of saying, let's look at all the things that might be contributing. You've been seeing doctors for years. You're on 20 pills a day. You're still not any better. The current approach you're taking is clearly not working. So let's take a different approach. Let's take an approach that at the very least is going to do no harm. Absolutely. You know, that's always my philosophy. So we made big change to your diet. Yes, you were resistant. I do remember that. I remember that day well. That's one day I actually do really remember. Do you? Absolutely. Um, do you ever watch the series? Do you ever watch the, do you ever watch your episode? I used to watch it. I know it sounds really sad, but I used to watch it quite a lot at the beginning of my recovery, just because it was a nice reminder of Where how well been? I was doing. I hadn't watched it for 18 months, but obviously before coming here, I did watch it again. What do you think when you watch it? It's like, I don't recognize myself to be honest. And I've learned, like learned so, so much. You know, I had no idea about the power of food. Yeah. You know, obviously with my size of me, it's not like... I'll be lying if I said I'm always 100% yeah. like into that diet particularly, but actually I prefer eating that way. You know, I don't bake the way that I used to because I know if I bake something, I'll eat it. Um, yes, I still like cake and I still like chocolate, but it's nowhere near as before. You know, we don't really, I mean, we never, really, I mean, to be fair, we always, well, Lena always cuts it. We always try to cook from scratch. Anyway, and we still do that, but we don't, you know, we never bought chairs in, we don't use chairs. And even today, you know, and it's initially it was like I thought I was depressed. And this is, this is stupid thinking, but this is when you don't think right. We didn't engage the boys with that diet because we kind of saw it as a punishment almost. Yeah. Isn't this um, fascinating? 
But like now, obviously, again, they're not perfect and it is a struggle getting a veg. And it's funny because they have a thing like, mum, don't tell them what's in it. If I make a curry, don't tell them what's in it. Because I know I'm going to put as much veg in as I can. And they're still reluctant. It's they're ridiculous, but it's like, you know, I'll make them, I don't eat the bread, but I'll make them wraps and I'll shove as many different coloured yeah. um, veggies in as possible and I'll cut it up. Finally, I make soups because they'll eat the soups and I can obviously, again, I blend it so they're not seeing it. Cameron's come around the most actually in that because he will, he's like, just put my plate, I'll eat it, just, it's fine. But it's, for me, if I'm, if I, how, I realised, me and he was sat there one night, we had this really nice fish and sweet potatoes and I'm like, we're eating really nice meals and we're giving our kids crap. What are we doing? Buying them chocolate, is that really a treat? What we're actually putting in the bodies? You know, so to me, I said with them, what we do is kind of halfway measures, which obviously you do then get halfway results. Yeah. But even Logan, it was funny because Logan is nearly 16 and he's eating so much. And he, even he can't binge the way they used to. He went, Mom, it's your fault because of healthy eating. <laughs> so it's like, and obviously because he plays rugby, we're trying to encourage him to make yeah. sure he's eating, you know, nutritionally dense food. So it just took a while to sort of think, why are we eating well? And we're giving our kids who we love more than anything else in this world. Why are we giving them rubbish? We sort of feel, don't we, that sometimes uh, oh, it's a punishment to have to eat well in a way that nourishes our body because our norm, many of us, not all of us, but many people's, their norm is to have a lot of highly processed um, junk food, a lot of quick convenience food. And I get it. People are busy. Life is tough. You know, people are rushing around. I totally understand it. But it's funny how we've got to that state in society where often it's seen as a punishment, eating well, nourishing our body with the right sort of information and fuel from foods is seen as a punishment. And But it's advertising if you think, I mean, again, with Zachary, we do a project where we go around the supermarkets and even he knows that all the junk stuff is usually on offer, it's usually advertised and marketed really well. Whereas the fresh food, the whole food isn't. Yeah. The fact that you have this awareness and the yeah. fact that you and Ian realize after a while, it's like, hold on a minute, we're having all this whole nourishing foods, but we're not giving that to the kids. It's that is that is the journey we're all on, right? We have to figure this stuff out in our own time. I don't think anyone likes to be told what to do. Like I think what what's really exciting for me, and we will definitely explore this in the conversation, is that, you know, yes, we have text contacts and there was a bit of um, help after the series, but generally speaking, you have been empowered with this information. So you are responsible for your recovery. You're the one who's learned about your body. You know, the food choices I, I recommended were simply a trial for like four weeks, for six weeks. Let's try, let's see what happens. Does it improve your gut function? Does it improve your pain? If not, fine. But at least we can start to rule out things. And I I actually like, I'm a big fan actually of uh, a well-managed elimination diet. So I did that for six months actually. Did I you? On it, yeah. yeah, and look, I think for, of course it's best to do this with a nutrition professional wherever possible. Um, but I think... I personally feel that a well-managed elimination diet can can empower people so much in terms of what different foods might be doing to them. I have so many patients who are like, yeah, I didn't realize every time I have dairy, my skin breaks out. That's exactly what happens with me and Zachary. Really? And it was really interesting because when Zachary was a baby, he ended up on lactose-free milk because I initially fed him. I didn't realize, again, I didn't realize I could just take dairy at my diet. So I went from was it, breastfeeding to bottle feeding and he had to be lactose-free. And initially they said, well, just try with the yogurt. And it's only because I went, obviously doing the elimination diet, I removed that. When I put that back in, I realized it made my throat cloggy. My skin yeah. goes spotty. Zachary's skin goes spotty. Doesn't have a, neither of us have a huge reaction to it. 
But again, he, I know he's, he's now on lactose-free products because I'm not, I can see the difference in his skin. For me, this is what it's about. This is about empowerment, right? This mm. is about not telling people what they can and can't eat, but it's giving people the tools and they go, you know, I, I would say that the analogy for me is this, right? With anything to do with lifestyle. If someone wants to go out with their mates on a Friday night and have a few beers, right? To unwind after the week and they stay in the pub all evening, they often know that there is going to be a price to pay on the Saturday. They're going to have a headache. They're going to be a bit fuzzy headed. They're not going to be able to function properly. But presumably they're making the decision to go out on a Friday night in that knowledge thing. I'm going to get enough enjoyment out of seeing my buddies on a Friday night to put up with the consequences tomorrow, right? On some level, they know that's going to happen. When With anything I do with a patient over lifestyle, my, my goal is to do the same thing, is to help them understand for themselves what different choices are doing. Then once you've got that understanding, yeah, it's up to the individual. My job is not to tell someone what to do. I'm never told, in my, in my eyes, I've never told a patient what they should or shouldn't be doing. That's not what I feel I'm there to do. It's to empower them. And so you now figured out that when you have dairy, you know, you get clogged up, you might break out on your skin. So then it's up to you what you do with that. If, if, at Christmas time, you decide, hey, you know what? I really want to have this. And you're happy to put up with the consequences. Well, I feel you're, I feel you should be allowed to do that. And to be fair, I do. And like I said, exactly. it is a choice and I'm far from perfect with it. It's just, I'm much more aware. So if, you know, it's, it's very rare that I, I, I do have dairy, but if I do, it's a, it's a deliberate choice that I'm making knowing that it's, but I'm not constantly subjecting my body to something that I know yeah. it's going to have a, a reaction to. And that's the key, really. It's I limit it rather than yeah. just ignore it. Yeah. And I, I love that. I really love that. And I think, you know, I'm not at all, just to be clear, I'm not telling everyone or, or I'm not suggesting everyone should stop eating dairy. I'm just saying many people feel better off it. My interpretation fundamentally, in a nutshell, what we did together was this. It was basically adopt the philosophy in my first book, The Four Pillar Plan, look at food, movement, sleep, and relaxation and tweak them all to suit you and suit where you're at. Uh, but then I think because you were so unwell and because you were in so much pain um, and your energy was so poor, I had to give you some uh, supplements basically to support your mitochondria. So I think that it was like this four pillar philosophy with the short-term use of um two supplements in particular that were really there to help your mitochondria function better. Is that your recollection of what happened? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And are you needing any supplementation today or are you sort of pretty much okay with your lifestyle? I'm not taking any supplements at the moment. Yeah. See, and this, I think the whole issue about supplementation gets misunderstood with the public and the medical profession sometimes. Just to reiterate, and I, and I, I'm just making this point particularly for the listeners here. When we use the term lifestyle medicine, I never want it to infer that people have done things to themselves. And I I don't know if that's how you might have felt at the start at some point. I love the term lifestyle medicine. Yeah. Initially, I interpreted that as being just food. Right. And I think so many people mistake lifestyle medicine as meaning food. And if anyone takes anything away from what we're saying today... I'd like them to know that actually lifestyle medicine is so empowering and it puts us back in control. And to me, that has just been phenomenal. And it's not just food. It's like you said, really what you did with us is the four pillar plan. You know, it's, and I recommend it to every single person I meet. Um, but actually 
we are also, I was, I don't want to speak for anybody else, some of the, the way that I lived, I massively contributed to me becoming ill. Was that deliberate? Absolutely not. You know, there was no conscious thought of, oh, I want to make myself ill. But there's so many things actually that is it any wonder that eventually I became ill. Yeah. So we do do it to ourselves, but very much inadvertently. And there's no blame. And initially I blamed. And this is one thing that really kills me with this illness. The guilt, the guilt haunts you. And obviously, because I do have a support group in all the time, it's guilt, 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 guilt. And it's so misplaced. Yeah. You know, and it's it breaks my heart, actually, that the number of people who feel that guilt and I felt it too. And I, I still remember that I kept saying to Ian, I would not blame you in the slightest if you left me. I remember you know, and I truly meant it because I would not want it to have lived with me. But now I look back and think, why on earth did I say that to him? Why was I keep pushing him away? You know, it's, I was, I was ill. It wasn't done intentionally. There were things, there was extraneous factors that got involved that wasn't my fault, but there were definitely things that I do hold myself responsible for. Um, and I know that's not everyone's case, but in my case, it definitely was. Um, but I was just constantly saying, I wouldn't blame you if you left. If Ian got ill, you know, if you broke his leg, I was like, I'm not looking after you. Yeah. You know, and it's... It's, 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 um, there's so many things that come up from that because I think what you said about, um, lifestyle medicine, I think is such a beautiful way of, of talking about it. I think that's the funnest thing for me about this whole field is that you empower people. People feel that they've got a sense of agency, a sense of control now over what happens rather than being at the whim and, and, and all whatever the illness wants to do, you've actually got some control. You taught me to listen to my body. And for the first time in my life, I actually started to begin slowly to take a while to understand my body. I no longer ignore my body. You know, yeah. it, it, your body is so clever, isn't it? it? It actually tries to tell you that things are going wrong yeah. and it is so easy to be dismissive. Um, and that in itself is empowering. <music> Just taking a quick break in today's conversation to give a shout out to the sponsors of today's show. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. To be really clear, I absolutely prefer that people get all of their nutrition from foods. But for some of us, this is not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. So if you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. You know, you mentioned about saying to Ian, um, you know, I wouldn't blame you if you left me. I mean, that's a pretty profound thing for someone, for a wife to tell her husband, you've got three kids together, you've lived together. And I think that guilt, Nicola, is also something that I'd love to explore because um, you were quite, you know, you, you never wanted to put anyone out. You, as you say, you don't want to share much about your illness with other people. And I sensed a few weeks in, and you'll remember well from the way they cut the show, um, we had this probably an hour conversation, which obviously gets shortened to a 45 second piece in the, in, in the actual final cut of, of what was shown. And I remember, I don't remember the audience announced, but I remember seeing that many things were starting to improve. 
Um, clearly many things were not as well. And I was thinking, okay, because I see this a lot with my patients in clinic. Like, let's say people have been unwell for a period of time. And let's say there's, um, you know, 15 things are going wrong. If five of them start to get better, it's still, it can often still be a case that, yeah, things are still really bad um, because there's 10 things still bad. Because w- I think it's just human nature. We focus on what's not going well. Absolutely. Which is why yeah. I'm a big fan of MSQs, medical symptom questionnaires, where you can literally track it and go. I, remember doing, I did one. Of we did one. Yeah, 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 we did one where it's like, okay, you know, three weeks ago you were scoring 80. Now you're scoring 40. I get it. 40 still bad. There's loads of stuff going on. But look. I was thrilled by that. <laughs> yeah, all those things are getting better. And I remember thinking, because I also, you know, the reality is it's a slightly artificial situation knowing that this is coming out on TV and knowing that I've only got six weeks with you. And I knew, I knew inside me somewhere that I could help you. But, you know, you you got worse first. There's no question you got I worse. I did get worse, yes. Um, there are all kinds of emotions flying around on both sides, basically. And what's, what I guess what's really hard um, for me is with, with every family, as you get to know people, really know them, their partners, their children, you know, it can be tr- challenging to maintain objectivity. Do you know what I mean? You, yeah. you sort of become... Because you became a friend. Yeah. You know, and it, it, you, it doesn't say, obviously you've, you were my doctor, but we chat off camera and I, I thought that we genuinely had a friendship there. And, yeah. You know, obviously with Ian as well, and you'd make the boys laugh and, you know, it's just... It just felt so natural and so nice. But it also makes my job then hard sometimes because, you know, I'm also was there to be your doctor. And yeah. at one point I, I remember saying, and, and I'm interested in your perspective now, having seen it recently, is obviously we had that conversation where um, you you left the room and quite upset. And obviously I felt really bad afterwards. But I I think from my side, I was trying to get across that, look, we're, we're dealing with a lot of things here. We're dealing with your diet, your... Um, physical activity, your sleep, but I think we've also got to deal with emotions as well. And I was trying to get across in as kind a way as I could at that time, the idea that, you know, we've got to really think about mindset as well and think about, you know, having a belief that things can get better and actually you can see the light of the tunnel. But what is your recollection of that conversation? And what was it, what was your recollection or, or your view now when you look back at it and see that the camera showed you, you know, walking out and storming up the stairs? How- Such a diva. Honestly, I was talking bollocks. I was absolutely terrified. Yeah. Because the, the thing with the illness is that, just half spot, sorry. Um, the thing with the illness is you know it can go worse. And I think the antibiotics had just really knocked me for six. And one thing I'd not thought of with you being around as part of that process was that I could actually go worse. So mentally I'd gone, I'd gone really down, really low. And I didn't understand that actually that could just be a symptom of the antibiotics. So I didn't have that perspective. So, but in my head, I generally thought it wasn't fear. But actually looking back, I was absolutely terrified because I didn't know where this was going to go. And I really tried not to have any expectations on you. Um, it was a weird thing. I, I, obviously, I wanted help, but I didn't know if you could, because I've been told so often that there was no help. You know, and but then it, it was, like you said, it kind of gets murky, because I really liked you as a person, as well as obviously as a doctor, but just to have chats with you, it's, you know. Um, but it was just, I, I was... 
absolutely scared. Yeah. I was really, really scared. And I was scared for a long, long time. And I did not know how to put that fear and make it positive. Yeah. Because I still get scared sometimes, but I turn it around. So, so this is, this is really key, Nicola, because I think this applies, not only to you, this applies to many people, many patients, um, all of us on some level, we get scared. We get scared about possibilities, particularly if we've lived a certain way for, for a long period of time and, and been told there's no hope. So do you know, I mean, are you able to look back now and go, well, how did you change from being scared to actually, you know, you're, you're like a different person now chatting to you, whether it's on the phone, over text, even picking you up from the station, staying chatting to you. You feel like a different person. Like you're still the same, you know, lovable Nicola that you were back then, but something's changed. There's a steeliness to you now in a different way. There's more, I think, I think you're kinder to yourself than you were. Yeah. What happened there? I just, um, I think there's a, I just truly hated myself. So it's, um, I did not value my own feelings, my own thoughts. Um, I wasn't, I felt worthless. I felt useless. I was a burden. I've been told so often growing up that, you know, it's my feelings didn't matter. I'd been told, it's funny because like, it, again, you know, like my mum would say, oh, you're really lucky to have Ian. But it's like, she never said, but he's lucky to have you. You know, and I was last in the list. I didn't look after myself. I didn't know even how to look after myself. You know, so I think a lot of it was my self-worth, my self-esteem. I think you might have noticed in the change in text, I used to always apologise for sending a text, but then I got to a point thinking, why am I apologising for sending a text that I'm deliberately choosing to send? You don't have to read it, you don't have to respond to it, but for whatever reasons there were, I wanted to share something with you. So I'll wish you well, you know, with your books, when you did your book and stuff. But I was thinking, why? And it just, the things just, you, you actually said to me as part of the show, when we did the meditation thing, that lady was phenomenal. I didn't actually appreciate meditations at that time. But you said, you know, in effect, treat yourself like you would your friend. And I was so dismissive of that. And again, that's wrapped around self-worth or lack of. I teach my kids. I always said to my kids, know your worth. And I had no clue to my own because I felt worthless. I felt useless. I was a burden. What was I contributing Nothing. You know, I had I had actually not understanding the strength. Because I always say people with chronic fatigue and fibro, we really are superheroes. Because just to get up in the morning, people who've never experienced that will never know just how how hard that is going up one flight of stairs. Yeah. You know, that was you know, we I, I had to we had to downsize the house. We had to do loads of different things. We ended up in the smallest room because it was nearest to the bathroom because on the top floor, I just, the thought of coming down another flight of stairs to go to the top in the middle of the night, I just couldn't do it. And these are things that everyone takes for granted unless there's a reason that you, you can't, you know, and it's, so, but the, these people are living with this day in, day out and we're not kind to ourselves. We, we're just airing a voice is really... I always know your inner voice needs to be like you're in a goddess or you're in a cheerleader because you're in your head most of the time. So what are you telling yourself? Yeah. And mine was my enemy, you know, and it, it served that purpose very well because it kept me down because I had just no value. Yeah. 
I mean, thanks for sharing that because I think we're really getting to the heart of the problem with many people here. And this is, it's almost a cliche, isn't it? You know, treat yourself like you treat someone else, you know, and, and yeah, you were dismissive of it because the, the the right message has to come at the right time as well. And, and sometimes we're not ready for those messages. And, um, you know, it, it's fascinating hearing you say that because since since both seasons of Doctor in the House, I've really reflected on the whole process. Um, why, you know, what was going on with people? A, why they came on the show in the first place and it was desperation. They were just desperate that they couldn't get help and they thought this might be their chance of getting help. None of them wanted to really be on TV. That wasn't their drive. It just happened to be a byproduct. In order to have a doctor in your house for six weeks, you've got to go on BBC One. And it was almost as if, okay, fine, I'll do whatever it takes to get there. But I reflected back and um, some of this was sort of informed the four-pillar plan in some ways was that no matter what someone's condition was, whether it was fibromyalgia, whether it was panic attacks, whether it was insomnia, whether it was someone's hormonal issues, I still fundamentally took the same approach. It was very much less about a disease-focused model. It's more on a health creation model. It's like, Mm -hmm. okay, whatever it is, let's start with these four pillars. Let's figure out what's going on here. Let's try and just improve a little bit, little by little in each pillar. And I saw, yes, I had to do some extra things like you. I need to give you some supplements to help you. I had to do that with some other patients on the show as well. But ultimately, the fundamental core of what I did was the same. And I actually think the human body actually requires the same ingredients to thrive. And if we start focusing on that, that's when we're going to get a healthy, happy population rather than focusing on what's the name of this condition? Um, What is now the treatment for once you've got that label? How do we treat you? So it's a slightly different way of looking at it. But the other thing that really dawned on me is when I saw people really start to make shifts, and I, I think this is certainly the, ca- the case for you, and I, you know, I, I, I wonder if you would agree with this or not, but the real shifts start because yes, in six weeks you were pain free, right? Your fibromyalgia pain wasn't there anymore, which is just amazing to be able to showcase that. So you know, four or five million people in the UK, you know, seventy countries around the world, it's gone to. It's amazing to be able to showcase what is possible. But I realised actually, it's that emotional piece that is where the big shifts happen. Once we start treating ourselves better, once we understand where that comes from, that's where the real change starts to happen. Um, is that what you found in your own story? Yeah, and, and it took a like it took. I mean, this has been a, like an involvement and I'm still evolving with it. It's, it's. I mean, I think it was good 18 months down the line before I even began to sort of see myself differently. Yeah. You know, so it's a very slow thing, um, but definitely, yeah. You did some things in London, didn't you, afterwards? I think, um, I remember you would, I mean, first of all, the text you sent me, I love. I, the one I really remember was, I think I asked you guys when the six weeks I was with you, what is, you know, what is something you would love to do? And you said, there's a, there's a hill nearby called Rivington Pike. I'd love to walk up there with Ian and the kids. And, you know, we didn't get there in six weeks. You know, we didn't get there by the end of the show but I remember I don't know was it Easter it was Easter Sunday that was it it was Easter Sunday so we finished filming in November of uh, 2016 and then in Easter of 2017 I think yeah it was Easter Sunday you sent me a picture and I remember showing it to my wife it's like oh my god Nicholas at the top of Rimson Pike with a big smile on your face with your kids and I just thought it was just so satisfying I mean 
any healthcare professional listening, any doctor listening knows that feeling when actually, you know, you can really help um, people achieve their dreams and, and break free from the things that are holding them back in many ways. And, you know, did, did you, when you got to the bottom, when, before you went on your embarkment up to the top, did you know you were going to be able to do it? Yes. You just knew? Yeah. And the thing is, the weird thing with that, obviously, is physically I was a lot stronger but mentally, I actually wasn't. It took a lot longer for that. The, the, definitely, the emotional stuff took a lot longer. And um, brand new physically, I would be able to do it, um, and I wouldn't have payback for it. Um, and I did. It was well. I was still. I actually hadn't fully recovered at that point because yeah. it was the following April, and I hadn't actually. But I'd gotten to a point, obviously, where I could do that pike. Um, it's these little wins, right? Which aren't so little, yeah. but they just help you in the recovery process. You're like, oh my god, I can do that now. Yes, and you need that, it, it, and. <laughs> and I probably get sort of lambasted for this, but recovery is quite traumatic. It's beautiful and it's great. And it was like being reborn, but that's also scary and traumatic in some respects too, because everything changes. You know, everybody else has to adapt to me changing. I think I see it perhaps least of all of like my family. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was to get to the top of there, which I'd not been able to do for quite a number of years. That was a huge, like, yeah. yes moment yeah for sure now you mentioned people have to adapt when you recover and earlier on in the conversation you hinted that maybe that has been challenging for ian it has yeah yeah so this is really really interesting to me because i see this a lot with people um so why don't you share as much as you're 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 happy to um how has you getting better impacted things with your husband's in every way that you can imagine it's impacted and I think I mean don't get me wrong and he he's he's thrilled that I'm well but he was used to having me be the thing with Ian is when he met me I was broken I was already broken at 17 I met him at 17 you know um at that point I had depression anxiety so and he came along and the thing is, I never wanted a boyfriend at 17. I was not interested in boys at that time because I'd seen relationships very detrimentally. So in my idea, I was going to be this little feminist going traveling the world and being a language teacher. That's what my yeah. aim was. I've always loved languages. I've always loved learning about different cultures. I still do. But my aim was to actually be a teacher. Then I walked into college and I met Ian. And it was just like, I mean, they said love at first sight. And I know people don't believe in it, but I truly believe in it because I looked at Ian and it was like, there's just something about this guy that I really want to know. And it was just very mental, like yeah. head level, not even like physical stuff. It was more, there's something about him. And he was just reading a newspaper wearing a really horrible top. But it was, it was a bit of a naff top. Um, <laughs> and like, but you it, saw through the bad top. But I saw through that and the, the crappy newspaper he was reading. And I just thought, there's something about him that I really want to know. And then... He, he wiped college for three days wrong and left me waiting for three days. So it was like, where is he? And my friend, she was called Ertie. And she was like, he'll come back, he'll come back. He ended up working. So he, he wiped college to work. And then, so, but when he met me, I was, and he really was, it was like movies. It was, when you see a typical love story in the movies, it was just like that. I've never, to this day, I have never been loved the way that he loves me, you know, and obviously I love him, but it's, he's just been so generous with that, but he likes fixing things yeah. and he wanted desperately to fix me. So he would, 
And I, th- I think he struggled with the notion that actually the other person who could fix me was me ultimately. So we got into obviously a routine and he'd, he'd, he'd care for me, he'd look after me, he'd, he never he never complained. How that guy did not complain once, I have no idea because I'd have been horrendous, I'd have been him. You know, so, but he had to suddenly get used to me being stronger, to me wanting to do things on my own. He was always with me, yeah. you know, and I still want him with me. It's not about wanting with me, but I can do things on my own. Yeah. You know, I can put myself out there more now and I can... I love any opportunity I can to get out of my comfort zone. I will take it yeah. because it, it's thrilling um, and you learn and you grow. But he's really struggled with knowing what his place is in our relationship. Because it's changed. It's because fundamentally it's so changed. changed. But it's, you know, he's, he's the first, obviously, he doesn't want me ill. It's not about him wanting me ill. It's just what does he do when, because it's 26 years we've been together oh, now. Wow. Congratulations. Um, thank you. We've been married for 20 years. Is it 20 years? Yeah. 20 years we've been married. That's impressive. um, And, you know, it's just, what what does he do? What's his role? All of a sudden, I'm stronger. Not sudden, but I'm stronger. And, you know, he would tell me his opinion of things and I would back off from my own opinion. And it's like, no, Ian, you're wrong. And I'll argue sometimes with him and say, I don't agree. So it's having to evolve, right? He's having to really change. And how's he finding that? He found it, he he does, he finds it difficult sometimes because, you know, it's like, in a way, he's got this whole new person Um, and he's had to adapt and he sees it more than I do. I'm more independent, I am stronger, I'm happy wronging. I didn't know what happiness was. It's taken me 42 years to get to feeling happy and I'm happy. Yeah. You know, and it's just, and it shows and he loves it. But he was always doing things for me yeah. and I don't need him to be my carer. I hated him being my carer. But that changes but things. But he was really good. It does. And, it, and it, I, I, you see this over and over again. And it's, again, this can sometimes limit people's recovery because as they go down this path, it changes the dynamic in a relationship. And often people don't want that to change. Yeah. Um, it's really funny because he was always the one who embraced change and I was very fearful of it. Now I love change yeah. and he's going to be a bit more reticent with it. You know, but it's like, our whole relationship changed. We could do more things together. Not like, you know, even intimacy, that was such a, it was, <laughs> it's difficult to be intimate with someone when it's painful. You, you, you're yeah. sorry, you're exhausted. Um, so he, he quite enjoyed that, <laughs> that change because we could be more intimate because, you know, it was like rediscovering ourselves again. And yeah. it, it was, it wasn't my carer. Yeah. You know, and. Big shifts, big fundamental yeah, could, shifts. Yeah, going out in the evening. Yeah. You know, it's his, birthday in like two days so we're actually going away to the lake so off and I and don't know it yet um things like that which I couldn't do before you know so our relationship has it's not that it's got weakened it's, it's actually stronger it's just he's had to do a lot of the adapting yeah and I'm loving it and sometimes it's like a little bit whoa slow down a little yeah it's, it's, him, it's all new. I appreciate you sharing that Nicola because I think There'll definitely be people listening to this who will resonate with that. And actually, I think it gives gives them a lot of hope and a lot of insight as to, you know, one of, one of the most powerful things I've seen um, in, in my many years of seeing patients now is that knowing you're not alone makes a huge difference. You know, if I say to someone, someone comes to see me and I say, yeah, you know what, you're the, you know, I've seen many people just like you this week who've got a similar problem it is amazing. You can see like the shoulders drop a little bit and then just 
get a little bit happier on one level in the sense that not because they want other people to suffer, but because they know, oh God, in my head, I was the only one suffering like this. And so I think some people hearing that will be like, all oh, right, I, okay, so it's not just me. You know, as, as you say, recovery is hard. And you said something there, you said, you'll probably get lambasted for that. And I want to sort of dive in there because I think that's a really key point, something that we both had to face in very different ways by having such mainstream exposure on BBC One is uh, the wrath of people on social media. Absolutely. And I know you found that incredibly hard. So I wonder if you could share some of the things that happened at the time and A, what happened? What was your reaction? And also, if if that was happening today, given how much stronger you now are compared to then, do you think your reaction would be different today than it was? I'd like, bring it on today. Today. Today, I'd say bring it on. But back then? Back then it was awful because when I say awful, is what this, I'm particularly talking about the fibro community, not so much the ME community. I mean, to be honest, they drive me nuts. I'll be totally honest, which is why I ended up setting up my own group. But like the fibro community after the show, it was like, she can't be ill, she's wearing makeup. Um, well, yes, I had a camera in my house. I know, I know I'm fat. I know I'm not pretty. Makeup makes me feel good. It's a very unfeminist thing to say, but I like makeup. I've always liked makeup. So why should I change it? Because the TV program's there. But obviously I did want to feel that I looked good. So yes, I wore makeup. You know, the, the house was clean. Yes. Again, we had cameras. I also had Ian and a 17-year-old at that time. He was more than able to help clean the house. So obviously, I mean, you have a sense of pride. Are they making an insinuation that... They're saying that I wasn't ill, that I couldn't you, have had fibro because... You've got I was a clean house. Because I could do those things. Yeah. Um, I didn't have fibro because, the, you know, the, the the whole thing about negating my illness, what really, really sucked at the time was, not only are you negating my illness that I shouldn't have to justify to anyone, you're also negating my children's experiences. And, you know, nobody knew that, you know, we had... We, we ended up moving house and we ended up downsizing because we couldn't cope in a bigger house because we couldn't keep on top of everything because Ian was working full time and stuff. We, you know, so we, we had to sacrifice so much. Like I said, Zachary had never known me to be well. So yes, yeah. they could come at me and to a point I kind of not expected it because we weren't really taught how to even deal with that. It was just a don't respond. And I really tried hard not responding. But sometimes I did, particularly when things like, um, oh, wrong and should have taken her to the toilet what would that have proven like seriously what would that have proven you know um, they made some accusations at your kids as well I think about yeah they said that um <laughs> that the the obviously like the camera crew put words in my son's mouth yeah well no none, none of that and what I kind know of your parent kids. would I you be you can't make them say anything no but what kind of parent would I be yeah. if I'd allowed someone to tell my kids what to say yeah you know, and that was harsh. You How know, hard was it? That was very hard. And also not only that, they, they had this, there were millions of voices in my head. You'll, you'll regress, you'll regress, you'll regress, you'll get it back, you'll get it back. It, it, it's not a recovery. You'll get it back, you'll get it back. But they were saying that? Or that they was were a- saying I'd get it back. And for so long, if I had a twinge, oh, is it coming back? Yeah. That fear was huge. I mean, on the flip side of that, I met some, I've met some amazing, amazing people and we're now friends. Yeah. Um, but at that time, rather than taking all the positives, 
And there were many, right? And there were many. And you know what? The the beauty of it is now I've become really close friends to a couple of people that I would not have met had I not had the ME and fibro. Particularly one's a doctor actually, yeah. uh, called Mike. Um and he's been he's been a huge support for me this entire time. And um, we actually now go and visit him and his family in Dorset. Wow. Because we've become really close and then with other friends as well. Um but for so long, and he actually he was instrumental actually in helping me because he'd also had ME and his profession failed him. And he was the only person that I could talk to about recovery and about the illness. Because when I was ill, I didn't know a single other person who'd had it. Yeah. So it was very isolating just because I didn't know anybody else. And then the stuff I'd seen online was so abysmal and just, you know, like, expl- to me, again, this is just my opinion, but I just, I don't see the point in having groups where everyone's just saying how rotten they feel because those with those illnesses know exactly how rotten it is. So I I just think what you're actually doing by constantly reading other people's pain and misery is that's just making you feel worse. So I I don't like I personally do not like that. Um, Despite being pain free at that time, um, did you ever when you were getting attacked? Did you regret going on the show? No, because look where it got me. I said to you, I think right to begin, I wanted two things. First, I was I wanted help for myself, and if I got help and I, I progressed, I wanted to be able to help other people, and I, I can do that. And that was my passion right from the beginning. So I have absolutely no regrets. If I hadn't done the show and I hadn't met you, I would still be ill and I'd probably be a lot worse. Yeah. So how can I regret? Yeah. It's interesting, you know, you're sharing um, the experiences. And I've reflected on this because, you know, as we've, as I've told you, and I've spoken about on this podcast before, I, I got quite viciously attacked online. Um, again, 99% was fantastic, uh, really positive. A lot of people saying, oh man, this has really inspired me. Loads of people with a variety of different conditions. I, I still, even this week, I got a message of someone with fibromyalgia or who was previously been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and said, look, I saw that show three years ago or two and a half years ago, and it really inspired me. And bit by bit, I've been making changes and I'm just a completely different person today. And it's <laughs> it's so lovely because it, it's nice to remember those that, that it did inspire yeah thousands of people, tens of thousands of people to make positive changes. But I think what often happens is that if you have been told you're unwell, there's nothing you can do, and that you have fibromyalgia, and, you know, all you can do is take these painkillers, and, you know, there's just not much else we can offer. I was just, I'm trying to put my head in other people's heads and thinking, if you just watch, you know, yes, it was, a TV documentary, but let's say I've just watched a TV show where somebody has actually got rid of their pain in six weeks. It's almost too much to bear, I would imagine. It, it almost, it's almost too much to watch that happen. You can either go one, you can either go, oh, that's really inspirational. I'm going to start trying that, or you can go, that's just a con. That's just that's just not real. But, you I know. think people saw it as um, my success was their failure. Yeah, which really was not at all what you know what what I wanted, no. what, I, what I even envisaged. But also, you know, to, 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 I think it's important for both of us to say, we don't control the editing process. You know, for each one-hour episode, we shot 130 hours of footage for a one-hour episode. But not only that, as, as great as the getting rid of the fibro was, in terms of my movement, the actual fatigue was worse. Yeah. 
after the show stopped running. So obviously there's there's been so many gaps, which is why I, I just love the opportunity to do this with you today because it gives us that opportunity to fill those gaps in. You know, um, I actually, as silly as it sounds, I didn't appreciate being fibro-free until the exhaustion lifted. Yeah. And I kind of noticed things with hindsight. And how did it lift? What do you know? But I'm really interested as to... You've come, on, you've come on leaps and bounds since we finished working together, as it were, in that sort of traditional doctor-patient capacity. Um, and you've figured out a lot of stuff yourself. And I know you've reflected back on a few things that I said to you back then and be like, you know what, I wasn't ready to hear it then, but actually I can now see how, how, how important it was. I'm really interested in this. How have you started to be kind to yourself? Um, I'll give you a really good example. It's a bit of a long one. When we first removed Zachary from school, he was seven. And initially it was supposed to have been temporary. So my whole, my whole aim was that um, he would reintegrate back into school as if he'd never left. Now he's extremely academic, Zach. So he was out of school for about seven months. The head actually changed to the same school he was in. So we tried him back in there. Now we succeeded. He went back to school. He was still top of his class. I was having two periods a month because I just stressed myself out so, so badly. Um, and as I said, it's a bit long-winded. But then when I took him out again the second time, because obviously the responsibility is huge to home educate. It is a huge yeah. responsibility and it's one I take extremely seriously. Um, but when I took him out the second time, I thought, this is silly because my iron levels actually went lower from before doctor in the house when I got retested. Because what, what I've achieved there, Zachary was fine. He was just as clever. He was just as able. But what was I doing to me? And what I realized through that is what is perfection and who is perfect? You know, who is perfect? And I think there's, there's been lots of things where I could always be prettier. I could always be thinner. I could always be a better wife. I could always be a better mum. I could always be a better friend. But to what degree? So I then began to realise that actually I needed to take care of me so that I can take care of the people that I love in a much more efficient way without it being detrimental to my own health. And it was more like, you know, actually, you know, now I'm still home heading. I'm going to home heading right through till college. And the responsibility is still the same, but I'm not making myself ill in the process. You know, it's, I'm kinder because... I don't feel the need to be perfect anymore. Again, it's having that self-worth. The more that I started to believe in just like, I'm just a human being, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I have, obviously I have this, and I'm sure you'll know as well. I have never yet actually met anyone with ME who has a type B personality. We're all type A. We're all very driven, very motivated, um, very passionate, um, and we always, we, I had so many high expectations of myself. I would never place expectations I had on myself and anybody else around me. But I was always striving to be more than I was because what I was wasn't good enough. So when I kind of realized what I'd done with Zach, yeah, he went back to school. And yes, he was just as clever as he'd always been. But the cost to me then at that point was huge. I thought, this is silly. This is really silly. What am I doing? So actually I realized bit by bit that I needed to look after me. And again, it's that thing about self-care. I go on about self-care constantly because actually self-care is not selfish. We need, and you've taught me that through your books as well, but 
you know, we need to be able to take time out for ourselves. We need to do what nourishes our souls so that we can give back to the ones that we love actually better. You know, and and I think it's just the more I the more I said to believe in myself. And it's not cocky either, you know, I wouldn't like to think I'm all of a sudden I'm, you know, it's not about being cocky, it's just actually I'm I'm okay. I'm I'm a nice person. I know I'm not perfect, but I don't care. And that's the thing, really. I just don't care now about being more than I am because actually I'm happy with who I am. And I'm not at war with myself. You're really powerful, Nicola. I mean, it's amazing to see the insights you've had over the past few years. Um, you, there's so many little wins on the way, which you've, you know, so gr- you know, so gratefully shared with me. Uh, I love getting these texts from you, whether it's Rivington Pike, whether it's something else that you've done, or you've gone down to London and met someone, or you it's know, that pink concert. I have to say, that pink concert. Well, you've got the pink T-shirt pink on. T-shirt I can on. see World Tour <laughs> 2019. You're a huge pink fan. Tell me what was going on there. It was it was it was a very bittersweet moment because she actually performed closer to home several years back. I can't remember the timeline before Doctor in the House. Before Doctor in the House. And just to be clear, you're a huge Pink fan, is that fair? Massive, to say? huge Pink fan. Yeah, favorite absolutely. artist. Yes, um, I just think she's when you talk about inspiration to me, she's inspirational. Um, but she's she. It was I couldn't go to her concert because at that time I couldn't. The anxiety was huge. I'd had the ME, but I don't even think that I'd been diagnosed at that point because it took a long time. There was just no way I could go into that concert, but I could hear the music from where I lived. And it was like, so I tried to listen to the music, but I couldn't go. And then she announced last year, she was, well, she was still, she was halfway through the American tour last year when she announced coming to Europe. Um, and I was like, the tickets were being released near my birthday. And I kept saying, oh, I've got to see pink, I've got to see pink, I've got to see pink. But obviously they're quite costly and there's always other things to spend money on. And and I just, I even said to my husband, I said, I don't care. I said, if you can get me to Liverpool, the arena in Liverpool, I'm quite happy to sit outside and just listen to this woman sing. I really don't care. So he kind of like, okay. But what I hadn't known, and this is, this is, this is so touching for my son, is Cameron Sight, he's, he's studying maths at degree level. So he was at Salford Uni and he should be doing his lecture and he's trying to buy me tickets. And he actually managed to buy me tickets and some really good seats. And it was just, and obviously he gave me the tickets on my birthday and I think I just cried for about an hour. So to go, and what was sweet as well is Ian was willing to sort of drive down to London. We stayed overnight, we saw the concert. Um, so you went to see her in London? Went to see her in London because we couldn't do the Liverpool one because of his work, because of his teacher. So right. it was just, so he was he was more than happy to drive me down to London. Cameron was obviously looking after the other two boys. Also, I could, just so I could go and see Pink. You know, what is it? What what did that symbolise to you? The fact, you know, just for people who don't understand, I mean, what is it about that that actually made you feel so good? Is it that you couldn't do it before? Is it that you couldn't be in an arena with that many people? What what was it? It was everything. It was the fact I could not have gone um, to a concert when I was ill, and the anxiety was all. I couldn't even go to a supermarket at one point. My anxiety, I could not be around people. And I was in this huge, obviously Wembley Arena, and there was like eighty thousand people there, and I felt like it was just me and her. You know, it's just, I, I managed to really, I just, I wanted to absorb every moment of, and it just went by so fast. Every moment of her singing and the show and everything. Um, and it was just, I drowned out the fact there was 80,000 people. Yeah. And I got into video before Ian is like looking through the lens. and um, Because I didn't want to have the camera in front of me. I just wanted to watch. You want to be present. You want, want it to, to be, be mindful, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that 
I mean, it's just full circle reminds me of that mindfulness class we tried to go to in Manchester a few weeks in, which mm. didn't go so well. Um, but it made, but, but what you're demonstrating is you're at pink in the full throes of your recovery, able to have the energy to go to London, able to be around thousands and thousands of people and be fully present in the experience, right? Yeah, and that's what was going through my head. Did you have, I know at the start you you had some lyrics, I think was it on your oh, phone that you yeah. wanted to share? Is it from Pink? It is, and actually it's from a, it's from a, like a new album actually, not, um, yeah, but not I even think, a... Um, I don't know what they are, so share away. And it's oh, it's called um, Happy, I think the song's called Happy, and I think it describes my journey kind of perfectly from like the beginning, because she's just like, I don't want to live this way forever, keep telling myself that I'll get better. Every time I try, I always stop me. Maybe I'm just going to be happy. And I think that really, at that point for me, you know, I I knew life could be better than how I was living it. I just knew. I just didn't have a clue what to do. And then obviously that fear set in. Um, and I, like I said, I didn't even know what happiness was really. You know, not the way that I experience it now. And it's just, so that those lyrics just really spoke volumes to me. I thought that really describes my journey. Yeah. You know, it's just... Yeah, the beautiful lyrics. Uh, and obviously it really yeah, speaks to I can't sing you. it for you because I can't sing it. It's like... Exactly we'll do that next time. We'll do that for round two. <laughs> yeah. uh, but Nicola, this is a really inspiring way to sort of close off this conversation. I think I think your story is absolutely incredible. Um, did I think you'd be here today from where you were three years ago? I don't know, probably not. I probably hadn't um, even thought what it would be like. I was just trying to see in six weeks, can I get you to a better place? Can I help you understand a bit better what's going on in your own body so you can start making those changes yourself? Reflecting on everything, you know, reflecting back on the last three years, what were the key moments for you? What are the moments do you think for you that has led to this phenomenal change that you've experienced in your own life and your own health? I think it was truly understanding lifestyle medicine. I think it was having to really examine my personality. Um, like they say, all the expectations being, you know, being so harsh. As daft as it sounds, like I said, you know, I had no idea, no clue that food is medicine. You know, that's been a whole revelation all its own. Just food is so powerful. And I just didn't know that. Um and it's, I mean, that, and, and it doesn't happen overnight. I think as well, you know, we do say if you eat, if you eat well, um, you do feel the benefit for it. I think people with chronically ill bodies, it, that can take time because I yeah. stuck to the diet, even though I didn't feel better on it for a long time. Yeah. It's only when you go off it and then go back on it that you realize yeah. actually. So it's, sometimes I think we need to be patient. Um, and it was just more, like I said, it, it's, it, it's a whole thing of, as daft as it sounds, I think it's just, I'm happy with me and it just sounds really silly to say but we put because we end up having such low self-esteem that we're fighting ourselves before we even begin to try and fight for our health and also can I just say in terms of that language the language that we use we keep saying that people are warriors and they're fighters and but actually in terms of ME are you strong? Absolutely. To live with what you live with every single day. Yes, you are strong. But when you're using terminology, which is used for like wars and things like that, think about what you're actually doing to your body there. I always say no with ME and like fibro, you kind of have to put yourself in like a, a warm, snuggly cuddle. You, you do have to be really kind to yourself, not be aggressive in your quest to get well. You actually need to be much softer. Yeah. 
You know, you can't fight this the way that, you know, you can't go into a boxing ring and just punch somebody. It's just not going to work. You actually help yourself more by being kinder to yourself yeah. and lowering some of those ridiculous expectations. Oh, that's so incredibly powerful. And, and for me as a doctor, it's so, it's so insightful to hear that because I would never have understood that. I mean, you, that's, that is from a sufferer's perspective, someone who has actually suffered and has, has come out the other side and continues to, to find out what that other side actually can look like. Hearing that perspective is incredible. You know, I hadn't, I, I do agree with you. Language is super, super important. I think, I think there's something about you, the fact that you actually never said, I am ill, but I am living with an illness. Even back then you had that separation, which I think has stood you in very good stead because although it did in many ways, it, you never let the language, the way you use it, you never let it really define you. You never yeah. said, I am the illness. You were you were always slightly separate from it. And I've got to say, I think that has probably been an instrumental point in your recovery, the fact that you didn't let it define you. Um, and, and on some level, you did let it define you, but you weren't with your language, which I think is very, very important. But yeah, saying you're a fighter, I think many of us would say, wouldn't, wouldn't see anything wrong with that. And I, and I know you're a very kind and compassionate lady. You're not necessarily saying there's something wrong with that. You're just expressing your viewpoint and how yeah. you found it. And I've got to say, you know, you are putting back in. I mean, as you said, those two things that you wanted, help for yourself, but also help, you wanted to help other people if you do get the help that you wanted. And you're doing that. You've got a thriving Facebook group now. Can you tell people about that? Yeah, the, um, well, it was, <laughs> it was Ian's fault. I, um, he actually set the group up just before the show aired in June. Um, it's called To Be A Better Me. And obviously it's a play on words because uh, obviously it's like To Be A Better Me, but Emmy obviously in capital letters, meaning obviously the illness. Um, and it, we've just got, it's, it is a small group because I'm very choosy. Um, it's for, I always say, the way I say, you know, we can reach out on a bad day, but we don't talk about how the illness is making us feel on a daily basis because everyone who's in that group knows very intimately what those illnesses feel like. Um, so the group really is just so that we can share, in effect, it's all about lifestyle medicine. Yeah. You know, oh. things that distract us, things that can bring us joy because actually you can live, ironically, you can live well through illness. I never knew how to do that. Um, you know, using distraction techniques, using the breathing, breathing so powerful, yeah. you know, and I never, again, I was very dismissive of that. I actually, I still, to this day, I use deep breathing methods. Yeah. Um, I don't meditate now. I used to, I don't meditate now because I found I can just go for a walk and do some deep breathing. I can watch television and do some deep breathing and that treats your brain into feeling yeah. calm anyway. So it's not necessarily a Although I, I do value meditation, it's not necessarily meditation. It's what's going on behind the scenes. It's what so you found what works that, for you, right? Yeah. You found what works for you. Yeah. You know, and it's just the group, really, the group is lovely because it's just, it's a welcoming place that people can. And again, as well, I don't know whether you're aware, it's if you have mild ME, people on the more severe end can be very critical. And in our group, that's just not allowed because no matter whether you're on the, the mild spectrum or the more severe spectrum, there are difficulties in each yeah. stage. So I don't define whether someone has it mildly. It can still work to somebody who's bed bound because yeah. each comes with its own struggle. For people who are listening and feel inspired by you and your story, and there will be many, Nicola, and uh, I hope these days you can see that in a way that maybe you couldn't have a few years ago. I don't see it as inspiring to be honest. I still don't see it as inspirational, but it's nice that you say it and I do appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think people will. I think many people will be thinking, okay, that's I, I want 
that journey for me, even though everyone has to find their own journey. But what is the name of the group if people want to find it and actually request if they can join and have access to it? It's called To Be A Better Me. So they just go to Facebook and type it's in. It's Facebook to be, yeah, to type it in. It's like the, it's always a capital T and yeah. capital M-E. Yeah, and we'll link to it in the show notes okay. page of, of this episode yeah. as well. So if people do want that help and support, they can try and find it there. And can I just say as well, in terms of recovery, what people really need to know is the biggest thing with fatigue is consistency. You do need to be consistent when you're trying to gain in health. You do need to be persistent. And by do you need to be patient? I think those three things as well are key to any recovery. Yeah. I mean, thanks for sharing that. I was about to ask you, and maybe this is the answer to that. I was going to ask you, um, for someone listening to this, whether it's ME, fibromyalgia, anxiety, depression, any sort of health issue that they're struggling with, and they feel, you know, I can't go on, you know, how much longer am I going to have to suffer with this? Um, They can't see light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you've been there, you've been to some really dark places and you've come out the other side. What would you say to those people listening who need a bit of support? I would say that how you're feeling now doesn't necessarily mean you'll feel this forever. Um, Ignore all the stuff that you get told, concentrate on your body, Um, try and understand your body, make it your friend, not your enemy. Read your books, Um, they really do help. Um, And just know that actually... I'm living a life and, and it's not extravagant or anything like that, but I'm I'm doing things now that I never thought possible and I'm happier and content. And if I can do it, anyone can do it. You know, yes, I obviously I got lucky because you came into my life and kickstarted it. But as you said, beyond that, I've had to really figure out everything on you know, a lot of it on my own. Um, and it does take time, but you can do it. But you've got to have that if you've got that fire in your belly that says that things can get better. You know, it's very compli- It's a very complicated illness, um, but things can get better. And we just, it needs, I think we need to shout it from the rooftops when people do get better because it is possible. It's just, it's not really common knowledge. Um, and that's the saddest thing of all, really. It's just, it's not out there. Yeah. But you're doing your bit to help it get out Trying, there. Trying, very small um, way, yeah. And look, Nicola, I think, I think, you know, it's a big moment having you on the podcast. I think, you know, three years has been a huge, huge journey you've been on. I think sharing certain elements of that is going to be so powerful people. I've never had someone like you on the podcast before, you know, and I've never had, yeah, I've never had a patient story. It's something that I've thought long and hard about. So I thought, um, would it be beneficial for people to hear actually someone who's suffered and come out the other sides? We'll find out what people think, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure people will be kind and compassionate. There's nothing I think to disagree with in terms of what you said, you're sharing your experience. But you know what? I actually don't mind anymore. I'm not, you know, people don't have to agree. Yeah. And I know people don't have to agree. This is just my story. And and it's such a privilege to be able to say it my way. So, you know, thank you so much for that. Hey, not at all. Nicola, thanks uh, for coming over to my house today. Thanks for sparing the time, um, putting the pink t-shirt on, Absolutely. coming here to, to, <laughs> to share your story. I think people will join the group. Um, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what people think, um, what the various things that you've talked about from your experience. I'm sure they're going to resonate with so many people. Nicola, anything you're looking forward to this year in particular? And it sounds like you've got uh, a weekend away with your husband this weekend, yes. which sounds brilliant. 
yeah, I'm taking him to the lakes. We're going overnight and Cameron's babies. It's just, you know what? I enjoy everything. And that's the thing. It's You can always find beauty when you want to. And like I said, I used to always just wear black and I still wear black, but I like colours. Yeah. So my life's colourful. And I said that a while back, you know, and it's life should be enjoyed. It shouldn't just be in existence. And I'm grateful that I wake up every day and there's always beauty there. And it hasn't been smooth running, but it's there's always going to be challenges. But it's somebody wise, not too very far from me, said it's how you deal with those challenges. Yeah. So it's just I've gotten, I've I've become more educated on how to look after myself in a much more healthier way. Nicola, inspirational story. Um, you have certainly taught me more than I have taught you. And you may surprise you that, but you really have. Your story has taught me a lot about what it means to be healthy, what it means to be ill, how you can recover. Thank you for sharing your experiences with me. Thank you for coming on the podcast. And hopefully we'll be able to uh, follow up on this at some point in the future. Thank you very much. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better Live More podcast. What an inspirational story. Once again, a huge thanks to Nicola for agreeing to open up and share her story. I think she spoke with remarkable honesty, and I really hope her message resonated with you and has left you feeling inspired and optimistic. And what did she think about her closing message? How you are feeling now is not the way you will feel forever. I think that is a powerful sentiment and one that we can all reflect upon from time to time please do let Nicola and I know what you thought of today's show on social media. Nicola's group on Facebook is To Be A Better Me. M E is with a capital M and a capital E. On Instagram, she is NJ Singleton. And on Twitter, she is at Nicola Single T06. Of course, I'm at Dr. Chatterjee UK on Twitter and at Dr. Chatterjee on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to actually watch the documentary that Nicola and I took part in, do go and visit the show notes page for a link to the entire episode. For this week, it is drchatterjee.com forward slash 87. You will see the show on there as well as links to press and media articles about the show, some mainstream media commentary, as well as a link to the Facebook group that Nicola runs to try and pay it forward and help others. Many people are getting incredible support on the Facebook group, so do go and check it out. Now, in the conversation today, Nicola mentioned my books and how much they have helped her, but also members of her community and many of her friends. My first book, The Four Pillar Plan, outlines my overall philosophy on health and pretty much summarizes a large part of the approach that I took with Nicola. It is full of practical take-home tips to help give you a blueprint for living well in the 21st century. My second book is called The Stress Solution, Four Steps to a Happier and Calmer You. Many of us are feeling overwhelmed these days, and I wrote this book to help you identify where stress lives in your life, but most importantly, to give you practical tools that you can apply immediately in your life to feel happier and calmer. And of course, my very latest book, Feel Better in Five, is coming out in two weeks here in the UK. And without question, it's my most practical and accessible health book to date. All of the books are available as paperbacks, ebooks, but also as audiobooks, which I narrate. Don't forget, guys, that this conversation is available to watch in full on YouTube. The best way to find my channel is to go to drchatterjee.com forward slash YouTube 
And if you do enjoy my weekly shows, please do take a minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by telling your friends and family about the show. A big thank you to Richard Hughes for editing and Vedanta Chatterjee for producing this week's podcast. That is it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you hit press subscribe and I'll be back in one week's time with my latest episode. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.